Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to concentrate, and ready to let the Holy Spirit take what we study and apply it to our own spiritual life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you that you are a God who has provided everything we need for salvation, and you are a God who provided everything we need for our spiritual life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us and whose ministry it is to fill us with your word. And in that capacity, he is the one who teaches us, who guides us, who leads us, and directs us in our spiritual advance. Father, we thank you for this country, our nation that guarantees us the freedom to assemble, the freedom to worship, the freedom to study your word, the freedom to advance in our spiritual life without any government interference. Uh, We pray that you would continue to provide that. We pray that you would watch over this government, protect this nation, guide and direct our president and those who are in policy-making decisions, both in the military and in the civil government. Now, Father, for us, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that they might strengthen our faith, give us greater confidence in who you are and what you have provided, and that we might not grow weary in our advance to, in our spiritual life to study your word and apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back on American soil as always. I'm going to wait until Wednesday night before I give you an extended report on the trip to Russia. This was quite a bit different from my usual trips to Ukraine. You have to remember they're two different countries now and have been for the last, I think, 14 years. But this trip was hosted by a different organization, East-West Ministries is the name of the organization. They came out of an older organization that had been in operation for uh, many years, taking uh, pastors from America behind the Iron Curtain, taking training materials behind the Iron Curtain, using uh, tapes, using radio, all kinds of different uh, methods in order to get the Word of God to Soviet citizens during the time of the of the Iron Curtain and during the period of the Cold War. When that was over with, the, or, the, the founder of the organization, who some of you may know, Joseph Dillo, who wrote the book Reign of the Servant Kings, took the organization to Hong Kong in order to continue the ministry of taking materials to those who can't get them. Part of his staff reorganized under East-West Ministries in order to establish training centers for pastors as well as uh, seminaries to train new pastors in the former Soviet Union. They have several different uh, schools and centers of operation. So I was invited to come to St. Petersburg, and then initially it was two other seminars that got combined into one down in a village of 600,000 south east of Moscow called Razan, and you really discover a difference between... Moscow is a city, I mean, a country unto itself. It has a popular... 
Well, an official population of about 12 million, but an unofficial population of close to 24 million. So it is, uh, let's just say the traffic in Moscow would make anyone from Houston or L.A. or New York just shut their mouth when they start complaining about traffic. I'm convinced that my guardian angels are now on a well-deserved rest. (laughs) And I think I came close to meeting Jesus four or five times every day. The traffic there is, it's almost as bad. The only place I've seen driving worse was in Almaty when we were in Kazakhstan four years ago. They don't make their own lanes of traffic in, in Moscow quite as frequently. And at least every excursion in a vehicle finds you in some sort of, of uh, log jam of traffic, gridlock, where you, you're just stopped dead for 30 or 40 minutes before somebody decides to, to move. So it's uh, it's interesting, and then you're always finding people just jutting in and out of traffic like nobody else is around but them. So it's it's a lot of fun, and it's it teaches you to utilize the faith rest drill when you're when you're in the car with the driver. Now we had a driver in St. Petersburg the first week I was there, who told us told us a story about uh, pastors and drivers. Now this guy. Works. He's sort of an independent contractor who drives for a lot of the pastors and missionaries who come over. And so it turns out that a driver and five or six pastor missionaries all died, not in an automobile accident, but all, they all died in about the same time and ended up in heaven. And at the judgment seat of Christ, the pastors each received nice crowns, but the driver received this enormous crown and multiple rewards. And, of course, this made the pastors quite uh, upset because they thought, we spent all this time traveling around the world and preparing and teaching. We led hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord. We are the ones who taught the Word. And so the Lord said, yes, but when you started teaching, people began to fall asleep. But when the driver started driving... People started praying. <laughs> and I can attest to that. That is a that is reality. So and we experienced everything from the first day we were there in St. Petersburg having taken our warm clothes. Because you're not that far. You're on the same level as Helsinki and Oslo, Norway. And so you're pretty close to the Arctic Circle. So we Expected a couple of days, you know, to step back a few weeks in time in terms of winter weather, not expecting that it would be 75 the first two days that we were in St. Petersburg. So it was, it was quite warm for heavy winter clothes and wonderful weather. And of course, I started debating whether I should have taken a, bought this heavy coat I took with me. And then, of course, it, things got back to normal. By the time I was in Razan, we had six inches of snow while I was teaching. And so it was quite a, quite a range and nasty 35 to 40 degree rainy weather for several days. But, but overall, it was a great trip. And I will give, show you some slides and pictures on Wednesday night and, and give a little more summation of, of um, sort of how I discovered that the group of, past, a group of seminary students and pastors that I was teaching in St. Petersburg contained about 50% Pentecostals. Yeah, we had, I had some fun there. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we continue our study on the resurrection. Now, the theme of this whole chapter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, its implications. This is the only chapter in, uh, in the Scriptures that gives an extended, detailed analysis of the doctrine of the resurrection. So it is a crucial uh, crucial passage for understanding that particular doctrine. And it, Paul begins in the, at the beginning of the chapter by reiterating that the doctrine of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ was part and parcel of his, uh, the, of his teaching of the gospel when he came to Corinth the first time. And that episode is recorded in Acts chapter 18. Further, he emphasizes that this was something that he uh, 
uh, proclaimed when he was among them the first time. In verse 1 he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you, that is now, the gospel which I proclaim to you in the past, which also you received and in which you stand. So the emphasis is on the fact that they heard this as part of the gospel. But not everyone in Corinth believed the doctrine of physical bodily resurrection. Nevertheless, they were they were still saved. Paul then goes on to say that in, in verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, uh, unless you believed in vain. And this begins to, in, in terms of the interpretation of the chapter, you begin to see a divergence between those who understand the grace gospel and those who hold to lordship salvation. Now, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, lordship salvation is an, a view or a way of expressing the gospel that emphasizes sort of a, in a backdoor manner the importance of works, that if you're really saved, you're going to manifest that in a certain kind of lifestyle. So at essence, or what's sort of uh, embedded within their understanding of regeneration is the idea that your sin nature after salvation just isn't quite as bad as your sin nature before salvation. Now, that's not what regeneration means, but it allows them to, to import a very subtle form of legalism into the gospel, sort of a backdoor uh, approach to to legalism. And the way a, a lordship uh, preacher would interpret this is that, well, see, what's going on here in Corinth is they didn't believe the resurrection, so they weren't really saved. They want to put resurrection as part of what you have to believe in order to be saved. Now, the question is, do you have to believe in the resurrection of Christ to be saved? Do you have to believe in the, resur- in the virgin birth in order to be saved? Do you have to have a clear understanding of propitiation in order to be saved or redemption in order to be saved? Do you have to believe in the second coming of Christ in order to be saved? I mean, what do you need to believe in order to be saved? And frequently people will go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 and say this sums up the gospel. And we studied that and we saw that that this isn't a summation of the gospel in the sense of giving you what you need to believe in order to be saved, but it is giving us the foundation of what makes salvation possible. In other words, this is the basis for the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is what makes the gospel possible. It is not necessarily the gospel per se, or it's not the minimum that you have to believe in order to be regenerate and in order to be saved. We saw that in verse 2 when Paul says, "If you, uh, by which you were saved, that he's not talking about justification salvation phase 1. He is talking about Christian life and Christian maturity. Then in other words, if you don't believe in the resurrection and, the, and its importance for being raised to a new life in, Christ, in, Christ, in the Christian life, according to Romans 6.5, it's the basis for the ongoing development of your, your spiritual life. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then it will hinder or stunt your spiritual advance and your spiritual growth will not be what it should be. In other words, your faith in Christ will get you into heaven, but it won't get you into spiritual maturity, and you will have believed in vain or, or without coming, bringing it to its proper conclusion. So then in verses 5 and 6, we saw that Paul emphasizes, or actually beginning with verse 3, he emphasizes the witnesses to the resurrection, the legal testimony validating the resurrection. And one thing we have to remember is, in contrast to mysticism, Christianity always validates everything that God does in history. Now, going to history doesn't prove the resurrection took place, but the resurrection wasn't some private, mystical, subjective sort of religious experience that the disciples had after the crucifixion. They weren't sitting around in a room and all of a sudden had this experience that, oh, we all we felt something. That must be Jesus. He rose from the dead. See, this is the liberal, uh, the approach of liberal theology. And I remember talking to, I've talked to various people over the years who have been involved in mainline 
Protestant denominations, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopal churches. And they've said, you know, I go to this church. They don't even believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And there are many Protestant churches like that. And these are the churches that became uh, seduced by the liberal Protestant theology of the 19th century. And what Paul is demonstrating here is, no, this isn't just some private mystical experience. You'll see it in some movies. We'll have it that way where, where all you hear is the disembodied voice of Jesus. And it's the idea that Christ rose, but he rose from the dead in your heart. And it's, it makes it a spiritual resurrection in terms of a physical resurrection. And that's really the same problem you have with the Greek culture operating at the time of Paul is that they really didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection, that this was important. It went counter to their pagan roots, their Greek background. So that we must contrast the worldly thinking of the Corinthian citizen or Greek paganism with biblical truth. And in Greek thought, we cer- I mean, we certainly see elements of this Greek thought still manifests today, and that's the idea that somehow the physical isn't as important as the, as the spiritual. And the, we have to realize that historically the essence of Greek thought was this dualism between spirit and matter, and that spirit was essentially good, and that matter was essentially evil. And therefore, that which is spirit could not truly become physical without somehow uh, becoming less than good because of its association with that which is physical. And ideas like that really per- infiltrated the church and Christianity all through the Middle Ages. This is part of the root to the asceticism that dominated even the monastic movements and all of these different views, even the, the view of marriage that dominated, uh, especially marriage and sex, that dominated throughout the uh, Roman Catholic Church from the early 3rd or 4th century on through to the Reformation because anything associated with the material is somehow less than good. They didn't go as far as the Greeks did that it was essentially evil, but it just wasn't quite as good as that which was ultimately just pure spirit. But this idea permeated the the Greek culture that... that, uh, the body was just sort of a prison for the soul. They believed in the pre-existence of souls so that, that everyone's soul is in heaven or out there somewhere in a non-material ideal world. And then for one reason or another, it has to be housed in a soul, for, I mean in a physical body for a while. It has to, and this imprisons it. So when the body dies, then it's finally free to go back to its uh, ideal state. And this was the problem that Paul ran into in uh, Acts 17. In Acts 17, after he expressed the gospel, uh, remember the Greek philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans were there, and they said, now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. In other words, there was a hostility and a rejection to this ridiculous notion of physical bodily resurrection. Of course, there were some that wanted to to hear more, but they weren't positive. This is somewhat of a sarcastic comment here at the end, that we shall hear you again concerning this. They They were intellectually curious, but they were not spiritually positive. We also know that this was the mentality of the time because there was a a Roman philosopher, Seneca the Younger, who was also a, a Stoic. And he summed up his thinking on this matter in this way. Quote, When the day shall come which shall part this mixture of divine, that would be his idea of the soul, and human, that is the physical body, when, when the day shall come, which shall part this mixture of divine and human, here where I found it, I will leave my body and myself I will give back to the gods. In other words, you leave the body, it goes into the grave to decompose, and that's all there is to it, and then I go back to the gods. This is not the biblical view. Biblical view teaches the body has significance in that it is, you don't just get a new body when you go to heaven. 
It is composed of, to some degree, that which you have now. I mean, this is the essence of Christ's resurrection. The tomb was empty. He didn't just get a new body. It is the body that he had before. It's what was transformed and re-energized into his resurrection body. And historically, this has been a basis in Christianity for giving the uh, for uh, emphasizing the importance of our human physical body. That it is not simply some temporary house for the soul, but it is somehow related, integrally related to that which we will have for all eternity. But the Greeks weren't the only ones who didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection. Some Jews also rejected it. The Sadducees, remember, there were basically three uh, divisions among the Jews religiously. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. The Essenes aren't mentioned in the Bible, but we know about their presence because those were the folks who had their monastic or ascetic community down in the area of Qumran where they had a library which we discovered and called the Dead Sea Scrolls. But in the Bible, you have the two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the moral legalists who took the Bible literally, and so they were the religious conservatives. They believed in the Bible. And then you had the other group, the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They were the religious liberals. They didn't believe in the existence of angels, and they didn't believe that there would be a resurrection from the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. Just want to see if anybody was awake this morning. That's really bad. But the concept, the doctrine of a physical bodily resurrection from the dead is clearly taught in the Old Testament. You have passages like Job 19.26 where Job says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. A recognition of physical bodily resurrection. Psalm uh, 17.15 As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, that is the dry bones passage. Those of you who are old enough remember the old song, Dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. Well, that came out of Ezekiel 37, 1 through 4 and following. That depicts the the dry bones in the valley and in the, the, the valley of death they're coming back together and God recreating sinews and muscle and then adding flesh to that and it is a literally it's a picture of the uh, resurrection of the nation Israel but it uh, is based on the idea of a uh, of a physical bodily resurrection Daniel twelve two makes this clear as well. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the idea is that those who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake. That, that implies a physical bodily resurrection. Jesus also taught a physical bodily resurrection in John six forty four where he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. And that terminology, raising him on the last day, is the Greek verb anastas, based on the verb anastasis, I mean, based on the noun anastasis, it is the verb anesteo, meaning to resurrect. And it is the giving back of life. So Jesus emphasizes bodily resurrection. And then, of course, John 11:25. When Jesus replied to Martha and said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. So there is the emphasis, and then he demonstrated that through resuscitating Lazarus. Lazarus was not resurrected per se because he had to die physically again, just as those who came forth from the grave at the time that Christ was crucified. There were hundreds who came out of their grave to testify to what was happening. And that must have been a phenomenal sight. But they, too, had to die physically again. They didn't receive a resurrection body. A resurrection body would not be subject to mortal problems. So what we have seen so far is that the Bible affirms that resurrection, physical bodily resurrection, is a reality. 
But, as I said earlier, it's not part of the gospel per se. And that is what I mean by it's not part of that uh, irreducible minimum that a person must believe in order to be saved. We use the gospel, I think it will clear, I'll clarify this, we use the gospel or the word gospel in five different ways. First way is we use it in a generic sense. It means good news. Euangelion, which is the Greek word, simply means good news or a good report. So this is just a very generic, everyday, non-technical use of the word. Gospel means good news. Then we use it in a little more specific sense in terms of the minimum required uh, for a person to believe in order to enter heaven. What is what is the gospel that a person believes in order to get to heaven? When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, thou wilt be saved, you and your family as well. The idea being that it's not just you, but if your family believes, they'll be saved also. That's the irreducible minimum. That Jesus saves, I'm lost, or it, it, it implies that a recognition that I am lost and under divine condemnation, however, uh, however vague that notion may be, the person recognizes that he is lost and under condemnation, and he needs to be delivered. And so what, Jesus is the one who delivers. Jesus is the one who saves, and by trusting in him alone, there is salvation. And the third way we use the gospel is in a broader sense, that ties in all the all the doctrines that underlie the gospel, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, regeneration, resurrection, substitutionary atonement. Do you have to believe all of these things in order to be saved? You know, most of us didn't understand any of these things at all when we were saved. We just understood that we were lost, and Christ died on the cross for our sins. When I was six years old, I couldn't even say substitutionary atonement. Much our propitiation, much less, or much less believe everything that's included there. So it's just a, a, a narrow sense is the irreducible minimum. Fourth, we use the term gospel to refer to the literature that describes the life of Christ, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are gospels because they tell us the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and they fill in the gaps and give much more detail. And then a fifth way in which we use the word gospel is to refer to all of the implications which develop from the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. In other words, when Paul explains the gospel, he's not simply explaining that Christ died for you, but sometimes he goes on to explain its significance for the fact that it gives you new life in Christ. And because of that new life in Christ, you no longer have to live like you did before you were saved, but you now have the Holy Spirit, so you can now live like the adopted child of God, member of the royal family of God that you actually are. So all of that may be referred to as the gospel, but it is uh, not the, the irreducible minimum. It is using it in the sense of all the implications which develop from the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. But as part of the foundation of the gospel, we have the doctrine of the physical resurrection of Christ. If you don't believe in it, it's not that you're not saved. If you don't believe in physical bodily resurrection, though, it will hinder your spiritual advance because it's elements of, of the Christian truth and the Bible that you are rejecting. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul begins to explain the significance and the importance of the gospel. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? See, there were those in the early church who didn't believe in this. In 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Paul warns Timothy about two men who were teaching this false doctrine. In verse 17, he identifies them and, and specifically says that their talk or their doctrine will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. 
So what they mean by the resurrection in Greek thought was that this was a mystical thing, a spiritual event that took place when you were saved. And Christ Christ was raised uh, in your hearts. And so that means that that he is, he is alive in your heart, and each time a person believes, then Christ is alive in their heart. See, the problem with this is uh, we get into real fuzzy, uh, fuzzy thinking. And we see this in a certain uh, mentality today. You have in liberalism the idea that, that Christ didn't really rise physically, but because they continued to believe in him, he arose in their hearts. And so... By, by the impact and influence of his teaching and the impact of his person, it gave birth to the church. And you can be a Christian without believing in, in the resurrection. You see, this is the same sort of, of nonsense that you often hear at the time of a funeral. And you've heard it. Somebody dies and somebody says, well, as long as you remember them, they're alive. No, they're not. They're dead. You know, being alive, it isn't a subjective thing. I don't, let, let me tell you, I'll ask any one of you this question. Would you rather have your body dead in the grave and be uh, thought of by those you loved, or would you rather be alive, walking around, talking to people, eating your favorite food, taking part in whatever your favorite fun is? See, you know there's a difference between being alive in somebody's heart and being actually alive. And yet we hear this kind of garbage at funerals because people don't understand resurrection. People don't understand the gospel. That's the only way they, the unbeliever can find some sort of meaning and happiness and get past the pain and misery of physical death is to lie to himself that somehow I'll continue because I'm in the thoughts of others. And that's just garbage. I've often wanted to point that out to people. You know, just a mass self-deception of arrogance that, that you continue to live because people think about you. Well, I would rather be alive than to have people think about me, frankly. So let's not distract ourselves with this kind of human viewpoint, uh, human viewpoint garbage. Now, resurrection was clearly taught in the early church. This was the consistent apostolic message. This is what... Uh, Paul is saying at the beginning here, he says, Now, if Christ is preached, and he uses a first-class condition in the Greek, and this indicates an assumption of reality in the initial clause, which is called a prodesis. See, the te- we're going to get technical with some stuff this morning, so I hope that, number one, you're alert enough this early to be able to uh, track with this. And B, that I'm alert enough from getting over my jet, jet lag to make sure I can teach it in a clear manner. We're probably going to have difficulties with both. In a conditional clause, you have a statement, if, and there's a conclusion, then. This first clause that contains the if statement is called a prodesis. The then clause is called an apodosis. When you have this particle, E-I, expressing your conditional word, if, in the beginning of the Greek sentence, and then a verb in the indicative mood of any tense in the, in the apodosis or a verb of any tense in the uh, tense or, mood, or indicative mood in the apodosis, then you have a statement that the if is assumed to be true. It is not simply that it is true, but this was often used in logic to prove things. We'll get into a a brief analysis of logic before we're done because this section is intensely logical. And one of the things I appreciate about this part of, of Corinthians is it shows Paul using the standard uh, structures of sentential logic of that day. We'll get into what sentential logic is, but it's expressing it in sentences, expressing logic, showing that Christianity is intensely logical. You don't have to put your brain in neutral to be a believer. 
to be a Christian against all the Pentecostal and charismatic mystics that are out there. You don't just have an experience with Jesus. It is ba- you utilize ro- logic and reason, but you use it within the framework of divine revelation. So you have an if clause that something is assumed to be true, and then it derives a conclusion based upon the reality of the protasis, the reality of the condition. So in verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is preached, and he is, Christ is preached, it's a present active indicative of the verb keruso, meaning to proclaim. And what Paul is saying here is, Now if Christ is proclaimed, and he is, the apostles and others are proclaiming Jesus Christ. And here the word Christ simply stands for all that Christ did on the cross and is a figure of speech for putting a name or a person's name in place of all that they did or all that they accomplished. So he says, now if Christ is proclaimed, and it is clear from the Scriptures that the apostles continue to proclaim the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. In Acts 22 and 23 we read uh, Peter in his uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. In other words, you're eyewitnesses. You saw those things. We're not making it up. Verse 23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. And then in verse 31 he says, that he looked ahead, speaking of David, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all, uh, to which we are all witnesses. I guess I left verse 32 out of that. Verse 32, it's not on the slide. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. In other words, this was part of the apostolic proclamation. Paul refers to it also in Romans 4, uh, 1.4, where he says that Christ, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was part of the apostolic message. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 12, Paul writes, Now, if Christ is preached, and he is, this is the apostolic message, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead. And what we find here is that this Paul is emphasizing the consistent message of physical bodily resurrection. He is simply asserting that this is the consistent message. So how can it be that there might be some in the congregation who continue to claim that there is no resurrection from the the dead. So let's look at the logic of 1 Corinthians 15:12 through 19. To break it down, there are five sentences or five statements that we have in this in this structure. It's important to recognize that because of the way Paul develops his thinking. The first sentence is the summary sentence and introduction in verse 12. It begins with an if clause, first class condition. Every one of these sentences begins with an if clause. That shows the parallelism here. The second uh, sentence is verse 13. One of the reasons I identify this for you is because if you're using a King James or New King James or even in some cases the New American Standard or NIV, there's a tendency, because of the way the New King James translators operated, there's a tendency to try to make each verse an independent sentence. Now, you get into some problems in that, because sometimes Paul is extremely wordy in the way he develops a thought. 
Now, a sentence, a basic definition of, the, of a sentence is that a sentence is the, the basic expression of thought in, in any language. So a, a sentence expresses a complete thought. If you have a sentence that has 15 subordinate clauses, the main clause is still the main clause, and it still gives you the main thought. Everything else is simply secondary. But if you're a translator and it's difficult to bring that over into another language and it's easier to read by chopping the sentence up and you chop it up into 15 or 16 independent sentences, what you've just done is conveyed the idea that there are 15 or 16 independent thoughts here. The original has one thought with 15 secondary or subordinate ideas. And then when you get it translated over into an English Bible that breaks it up into 15 sentences, then it makes it look like there's 15 thoughts. That can lead to some confusion. So when you get into a passage like 15, 12 to 19 that's rigorously logical, it's important to break down and see where the sentences are. 15, 12 is a sentence. 15, 13 is a sentence. 15, 14 to 15 is one sentence. And notice it begins, and if Christ is not risen. See, verse 15 is not an independent sentence, as it appears in New King James Version, at least. It is subordinate to that initial conditional statement. Verses 16 through 18, again, represent one sentence. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. That's the main idea. Verse 17 and 18 unpack that idea. And then verse 19 represents the conclusion. So we, what we say is each of these sentences begins in the Greek with a first-class conditional clause. If and the premise is assumed to be true. Now the reason I put it that way, if and the premise is assumed to be true, is because this was often a debater's technique where the debater would say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's assume this is true. If, and then we'll draw what our conclusion would be if it were true. And we're going to see that in, in this sentence. For example, verse 14 will say, or verse 13 will say, but if there is no resurrection of the dead. See, if, if we communicate this as if and it's true, then Paul would be saying if, and it's true that there is no resurrection from the dead. But he's not saying that. He's saying if, and for the sake of argument, we're going to suggest this hypothesis, this thesis, that there is no resurrection from the dead. What would the conclusion be? So this is called sentential logic or conditional logic. And there is a, there is a strict system of this, which you can study if you look at, at any... Um, at any Greek or at any any handbook on logic, First Corinthians fifteen thirteen, Paul begins with the first statement. He says, "But if there is no resurrection of the dead, that is, he's taking as his premise in verse thirteen the conclusion of verse twelve. That is the statement that is made by the uh, antagonists in the congregation. Their conclusion is there's no resurrection of the dead." So Paul is going to take that conclusion as his first supposition. He is not saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. He is saying, but if, and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, that there is no resurrection of the dead, what would the conclusion be? That not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you assume that there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead, period, then Christ could not have been raised from the dead. That is his argument. Now here we have a comparison on the chart between verse 12 and verse 13. Paul sets this up in a rigorous comparison in order to logically develop his argument. The fascinating thing is that Paul is so tight in his logic that there are uh, no holes here. He, verse 12 started with the conditional statement, but if Christ is preached... If, and we're assuming it's true, and in this case it was true, that Christ was proclaimed, and that is compared to the initial uh, conditional statement of verse 13, but there it is an assumed to be true. But if, and, it's, and we will assume for the sake of argument, that there is. And then the second point of comparison 
is in verse 12 that he has been raised, and that is in verse 12, that is the verb uh, egairo. That is the verb egairo, which is a perfect passive indicative. And as a perfect tense verb, it emphasizes the uh, present results of a state and that was accomplished in the past, and you're emphasizing its present, its present results. In verse 13, he changes from uh, egairo to its synonym, anastasis, which is resurrection. And then the phrase, from the dead. Now, the, an interesting thing here is he uses the genitive plural of the word dead. In other words, it's, it's a resurrection from the dead ones. A resurrection from the dead ones. The same phrase was used of Lazarus when he's in the grave. Lazarus was raised from among the dead ones. So it's a clear emphasis on the fact that this resurrection occurred from a graveyard. That means that he was already dead and buried. So the the uh, underlying assumption there is that Christ was indeed physically dead. He didn't pass out on the cross. He didn't swoon like some liberals have suggested today, but he was physically dead and his resurrection occurred in the graveyard. So then the parallel of verse 12, he says, How do some among of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And verse 13, the parallel is that not even Christ has been raised. So verse 13 is a direct uh, polemic or argument against their claim. Their assumption that if that there is no resurrection from the dead. And the conclusion would be that Christ is not raised. This means you can't even say He's raised in your heart. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then you can't force Christ's resurrection into any format, any claim whatsoever. He uses irrefutable logic to demonstrate the fallacy of the opponent's uh, position. Now, what he is doing here is using a form of argumentation and structure all through this section, uh, which is called a, uh, in the Latin term, a modus ponens. That's M-O-D-U-S, modus ponens, P-O-N-E-N-S, which means the way of affirmation. The way of affirmation. And in this, you set up a, a certain... Uh, logical structure in a sentence. For example, you may say, uh, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that's your supposition that you're assuming to be true, then he is Christ or he is God's Son. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then he is God's Son. That is your sentence. That is the proposition. Since uh, the first part is true, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then therefore the conclusion is also true. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if that is true, then the conclusion is true. So this is called a modus ponens argument, or sometimes it is simply expressed as what you see on the left-hand side of the chart here, if P, then Q. Let me back up a minute. What you have in, in logic is a use of, of, of symbols to express What's it, you have in a sentence. See, that's all that math is, is, is a formula for expressing reality. And they do the same thing in logic, and so they will express your different propositions by just using letters. So you have uh, the letter P and the letter Q developed to express these different uh, propositions. So what you will find is that this modus ponens argument is expressed as if P then Q. Some people say this is where we get the English uh, idiom, minding your P's and Q's, because you've got to watch your P's and Q's so your logic comes out right. Now, other people say, no, that's not where it comes from, that in early um, typesetting or when, in the, when they first had uh, the movable, movable type in print, there wasn't a lot of difference between a P and a Q. P looked like that, Q looked like that. So you had to be careful when you were setting up your type not to confuse your P's with your Q's. 
I don't know which is a true story, but one of the others where we get that phrase, minding your P's and Q's. I like the logic one better. So what Paul is using is a classic Moden's Ponens argument here, but he's making it a little difficult. What's hard for us to deal with is negation. And he's really using something like a, like a negation for what he is saying is, if there is no resurrection from the dead, so that's a negative, then Christ is not raised. In essence, if you cancel out your double negatives, then you end up with the po- a positive way of structuring the argument. If there is resurrection from the dead, then Christ is raised. Now, that doesn't necessarily flow because he's working at it from the negation. But that, I just use that to give you the idea of, of uh, uh, the fact that we're working with a negative, which always makes it a little, uh, a little difficult to understand. So we express it symbolically this way. On the left, we have the basic uh, expression of the, of the symbol, if, of, of the statement. If P, then Q. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then it follows that Christ is not resurrected. So on the right, you would express that in, in uh, symbolic logic as P, and then you have a little sideways horseshoe with the opening to the left, P, if P, and that simply means if P, then Q. But in this sentence, because you have these two negatives, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not resurrected. You would express it as not P, then not Q. So the statement is there is no not Q. In other words, there is no no resurrection. See, we're denying that. So that means that you have the not Q is in brackets with another negative outside of it. And then you draw your conclusion, therefore, uh, not P, or actually that should be not, not P. So Paul is using, now you don't have to get this down. This is not easy. I'm just demonstrating for you the rigorous logic that Paul is using. He is showing that he has a classic education and that he understands the modes of technical uh, logical argumentation, and he is using those structures in order to demonstrate the invalid uh, conclusion drawn by his opponents. Because his opponents would still say, like our liberal friends will, that there's resurrection. And, you know, liberal churches celebrate, uh, and I'm going to use the term Easter every year, but they don't believe in physical bodily resurrection. Well, they can't do that legitimately. 1 Corinthians 15:14. Paul goes to the next level. See, in verse 13 he said, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not raised. And then he uses that conclusion as his premise in verse 14. And he says, Therefore, if, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. In other words, he goes to the next level and says, If there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ wouldn't be risen. And if Christ didn't risen, then our proclamation is emptiness and your faith is also emptiness. In other words, this isn't just some nice little point of historical truth. It means it strikes at the very core of what we are doing. It would mean that both our preaching and our faith is emptiness. It's vanity. It is nothingness. It is like the empty air. And furthermore, he goes on to say what this would mean is that we, that is we apostles, are even found to be false witnesses of God. And this is an objective genitive that means false witnesses about God. We're complete liars as about anything we say about God. You can't just take part of the message and reject the rest. You have to take the whole. And if we're lying about the resurrection, we're lying about God. And you can't trust us. And he, so he says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses about God because we testified uh, against God that he raised Christ. That is, we testified uh, in, in, in line with God that he raised us. Uh, literally, it's a, a kata plus, uh, plus the genitive, which means we testified according to the standard of God, not uh, against God as it has it in the in the New King James, but we testified according to uh, God's standard that that uh, He raised Christ. 
whom he, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So you see, he begins with the conclusion and ends with the conclusion of his opponent that the dead are not raised. And in between, he shows what the natural consequences are of that assumption. That apostolic witness is completely false, not only about the resurrection, but everything we say about God. In other words, he is simply saying that if someone doesn't want to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, they don't have any right to use any other elements of Christianity. This is a complete rejection of everything taught by Protestant liberals here and abroad. Then we come to the next section in verses 16 through 18. And there he takes it to an even more practical level that if there is no resurrection, he goes back to the basic uh, assertion, for if, if, and it's assumed to be true, that the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's your essential uh, our initial position, and he restates it, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, notice a repetition over and over again to make sure they understand the point. The conclusion is your faith is worthless. You're wasting your time going to Bible class. You're wasting your time reading your Bible. You're wasting your time trusting in God. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Why would they still be in their sins? Because if Christ wasn't raised then Christ didn't die on the cross for your sins because his resurrection was a, a validation from God for his work on the cross. And so if he didn't rise physically, bodily from the grave, then there was no substitutionary atonement. So your sins weren't paid for and you are still in your sins. Therefore, you will have eternal condemnation. Then that This is the point of verse 18. Then those who also have fallen asleep and that is a euphemism for Christians who have died physically and their bodies in the grave. The idea of falling asleep relates to the body being in the grave, the soul separated from the body, face to face with the Lord in what I believe is an interim body uh, until the rapture. I believe it's an interim body based on the episode of Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 17 with the uh, rich man and Lazarus because when Lazarus died, and he went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man had also died and saw him and said, Oh, let Lazarus put his finger in the water and put it on my tongue because I am in much pain. So obviously there's too many physical references there to indicate that there's no body, that the soul is just some sort of uh, ephemeral, disembodied, floating spirit. There, there must be some interim body. The soul always needs to have a body. That ran completely counter to Greek thought. And then Paul concludes... If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if you don't trust, believe in the resurrection, physical bodily resurrection of Christ, then you can't trust us in anything we've said about salvation. You can't trust us about anything we've said about God. You'd have no future. There's no eternal life because there's no salvation because Christ is still in the grave and we are to be pitied. See, his argument is that just the opposite is true, that Christ is risen, that he, is, he conquered death. Therefore, because he conquered death, we can conquer death. Physical death will be conquered, and we do have hope, and there is meaning in life, and there is a future that goes beyond this life because Jesus Christ uh, rose from the dead, and he is the first fruits. He is the first one, and we will follow him in resurrection. And he will continue to unpack the importance of the resurrection in the coming verses, and we'll get to verse uh, 20 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, this opportunity to realize uh, the truth and the significance of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. This is not just some nice little thing thrown into uh, the gospel accounts in order to... uh, somehow make Jesus seem like a larger-than-life figure, a great hero. This isn't just some invention that uh, the disciples came up with to uh, buttress their self-confidence, but this is at the very core of Christianity, and without it, everything else falls apart, and the entire uh, system of doctrine that is encapsulated in the Scripture is false, every part of it. There's uh, There's nothing there of value unless... 
uh, there is a resurrection. This is the crucial point of the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine where you will spend eternity if you were to die today. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Simply trust Him, which means to rely upon Him and His work on the cross exclusively for salvation. You're not trusting in your good works. You're not trusting in uh, ritual. You're not trusting in church involvement, church attendance, in any other factor. You're trusting simply in Christ's work alone, that He is sufficient. Father, we pray that You would continue to challenge us, to give us confidence in our faith. As we study your word, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.